Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we look at California's complicity in slavery. The focus of the history of slavery in the U.S. has often been confined to the North and South, with the West viewed almost as a free promised land. But while California did enter the Union as a free state, it had its own version of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1852 that forced freed African Americans back to their enslavers, and laws that sanctioned indigenous slavery with compounding impacts on Asians and Latin Americans. We shed light on this part of California's past and efforts to make it more widely known. Next on Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California's Reparations Task Force, through its ongoing work hearing testimony on the impact of enslavement on African Americans, has brought to the fore California's history of slavery, despite entering the Union in 1850 as a free state. It's this history we explore with Stacey L. Smith, Associate Professor of History at Oregon State University. Smith recently gave testimony before the task force and is author of the book, Freedom's Frontier, California and the Struggle Over Unfree Labor, Emancipation, and Reconstruction. Stacey Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You've noted that California's status as a free state, and also even in its constitution in 1849, basically stating that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude would be tolerated in the state, that that's been treated as sort of the final word on the state's views and handling of slavery. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I think we tend to treat Uh, The Constitution of 1849 and California statehood in 1850 is kind of the the end point of that conversation about whether slavery is going to be in California or not, when I really argue that it's it's not even an ending, but it's also actually a beginning in a lot of ways, because then there are lots of questions about can California actually uh, enforce this? What is going to happen with all of the enslaved people who are already in the state? And so um, actually Californians are engaged in a long struggle for uh, really kind of the, the entire 1850s over whether or not their state is truly going to be free or not. Can you talk about how you see that manifesting in the fugitive slave law that it passed in 1852? Yeah, so uh, California is unique uh, in regards to being a free state in that, you know, a lot of free states during this period, especially in the Northeast, were fighting against fugitive slave laws. Uh, The Federal Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was this really new, harsh Uh, law that required the free states to cooperate and participate in re-enslaving people who had run north uh, seeking their freedom. And so California did the opposite, which is 
uh, not just cooperating with the Fugitive Slave uh, Act at the Fed, at the federal one from 1850, but passing its own 1852 Fugitive Slave Act that essentially was a supplement to that federal act and pledged that the state would uh, help the federal government do everything it could uh, in its power to help protect slaveholders and not freedom seekers. And so California actually was on a different side than most free states uh, regarding this. California decided, well, you know, let's give the benefit of the doubt to slaveholders who bring enslaved people here and allow them uh, a lot of leeway and help and opportunities to take enslaved people back to the South that they had brought into California during the gold rush. So um, yeah, California is really an outlier there among free states in this period, which is, I think, a, a pretty interesting uh, development considering, as you said at the beginning, California is supposed to be kind of this free, and the West in general, a free place outside of the struggles over slavery that are um, exploding in the North and the South. Mm, can you tell the story of the formerly enslaved man, Carter Perkins? Because I think it really illuminates how California treated freed Black people. Yeah, so there were um, actually a group of, of enslaved people, one of them uh, being Carter Perkins. There's also Robert Perkins and a man named Sandy Jones, who were all enslaved by the same family, uh, the Perkins family from Mississippi. Now, they arrived in California with the son of their of the man who enslaved them, uh, not actually the man who enslaved him, but his son, brought them with him to California to try to make a fortune in the gold mines. And then the son, and this happens a lot, the son decided that this was not for him and he couldn't pay to bring them back or didn't want to pay to bring them back uh, with him, wanted them to keep working in California. So he left them in California while well, he went back to Mississippi. And uh, the men worked for a year, year and a half, and then uh, were essentially kind of given their freedom by the person they were working for. Uh, and supposedly they had their enslavers permission to, to, to be free at that point. But when California passed its fugitive slave law, the enslaver back in Mississippi said, oh, okay, now I see I have a legal remedy. The state of California is going to help me bring them back. And he gets his cousin, who's left behind, uh, to arrest Carter Perkins, Robert Perkins, and Sandy Jones, who had been living for free men, as free men for several months. And uh, they get arrested in the middle of the night. All of their property is confiscated, taken away. They're hauled in their own cart. They were teamsters, uh, mule wagon drivers. They're hauled in their own cart with their own mules or oxen uh, to the court in Sacramento. And uh, they are put back into the power of their enslavers through this cousin that, that claimed them as the property of, of the enslaver living in Mississippi. And the case went all the way to the California Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court uh, ruled that California's fugitive slave law was constitutional, that it didn't violate the state's uh, free constitution because the state had a duty to help enslavers who had brought people before statehood and mm -hmm. uh, the anti-slavery constitution. And so in effect, by doing that, 
it then took the slave law and and wrote an interpretation of it in case law, right? It really solidified it to some extent. Yeah, that's right. And what's fascinating about this case is that it didn't just set a precedent for California. Um, it also set a precedent for the rest of the United States because, so this case was in 1852. Uh, the Perkins, per, uh, Perkins, Perkins, and Jones were sent back to slavery. We think that they escaped in Panama. We don't really have any evidence about what happened to them. They may not have actually been re-enslaved, may have managed to escape on the way back to Mississippi. Um, but that uh, case law, we have some evidence that in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court used um, the precedent uh, in this Perkins case in California for making the much more famous, well-known, and important Dred Scott decision. And that Dred Scott decision essentially said, among other things, well, first, that uh, Black people were not citizens of the United States, but in terms of the West, importantly, said that um, the territories can't close out slavery, even if they want to. And here we had a free state agreeing with this idea long before the uh, U.S. Supreme Court finally uh, formalized it in its um, opinion in Dred Scott in 1857. So there's some there's some evidence that California influenced that decision. That is so interesting because I think often, even if we are willing to look at California's history with slavery, we think about the state as grappling with the issues that the North and South are dealing with and other parts of the country are dealing with. But what you're essentially saying is that they were also influencing the way to think about it as well. Yeah, that's right. I think this is an, an important but overlooked example. Uh, and I, I think we'll end up talking about it later on. But I would also say that uh, the California policy and attempts to restrict uh, Chinese immigration in the 1850s through the 1870s was also a major uh, had a major major impact, not just you know in an obvious way on the federal laws that uh, banned Chinese immigration in 1882, but also actually on Reconstruction policy in general. Uh, there's uh, Reconstruction after the Civil War involved a lot of new laws and legislation about civil rights. And California's anti-Chinese movement really helps to shape a lot of those civil rights um, pieces of legislation beyond, I think, what we generally recognize uh, to be the case. Can you explain that a little more? I mean, since you are raising it now, I'm just curious. Sure. In Reconstruction, there were these provisions around emancipation. Was there a big concern that in California that they did not want that to apply to, to Chinese people in, in California? So the big, uh, the, the big source of debate, well, two, were actually the 14th and 15th Amendment. So emancipation itself, the 13th Amendment, there was some grousing about it in, in California, but California uh, legislators really opposed the 14th and 15th Amendments. The 14th Amendment uh, giving, you know, equal, essentially equality before the law, equal protection of the law uh, to U.S. citizens and to other persons who are non-citizens. And the 15th Amendment, which uh, said that the states couldn't discriminate against voters on the basis of race, 
color or previous servitude. Now, you would think that California would be fine with all of this uh, because, you know, it's technically a free state. But uh, actually, California legislators uh, ignored the 14th Amendment and just didn't ratify it and then outright rejected the 15th Amendment. California did not ratify the 14th and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution uh, until the 1950s and 1960s during the civil rights movement. And the reason for that is because of the anti-Chinese movement in California. There are all of these concerns among whites in uh, California that Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans were going to get new rights, new legal protections, and the right to vote under the 14th and 15th Amendments. And so California fought really hard against those amendments, they ultimately lost, right? The amendments got ratified and, you know, California had to abide by them. But California was among some of the few states that were really, uh, you know, northern states that were, there were a few, Ohio and New Jersey included, that really fought Reconstruction. And that's, uh, that's the story here. We're talking with Dr. Stacy L. Smith, Associate Professor of History at Oregon State University. And I'm curious, listeners, what your reactions are to what you're hearing about California history. You can share your thoughts at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or Instagram. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about California's often overshadowed history with slavery, which has come to the fore recently through the state's reparations task force hearings. And I'm joined by Stacey L. Smith, who testified at one of the hearings and is associate professor of history at Oregon State University, also the author of Freedom's Frontier, California and the Struggle over Unfree Labor, Emancipation and Reconstruction. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What's your reaction to hearing some of this history that Stacey Smith has outlined, and what do you consider a missing piece of California's history with slavery? 866-733-6786 is the number. Our email address, forum at kqed.org, and you can always get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We were talking about some of the ripple effects of 
of Reconstruction, of the 14th and 15th Amendments, um, during this whole era, you found documents that were also showing actually concerns from people who did not want slavery in California, concerns about the treatment of you know, forced servitude on the Chinese, on women and girls, and in particular, on indigenous populations. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what I believe was known as the Act uh, for the Government and Protection of Indians, but was more widely known as the Indian Slavery Act of 1850 and its impacts. Yes. Um, so in my book, I, I don't just talk about enslaved people of African descent. I actually argue that it's important to understand uh, the history of enslavement in the broader history of unfree labor in California. And so we tend to think of California as, it, at least in the gold rush era, right, as this free, uh, freewheeling kind of pr place where lots of uh, immigrants went and made their fortunes and people were really free to move around and improve their social status. And I argue in the book that, you know, it's it, it's not really the case if you look at this early history. California, during especially during the 1850s and 1860s, uh, a lot of it was built on unfree labor. So while the enslavement of African Americans was a relatively small institution, maybe no more than about 1,500 individuals, the state actually had its own set of laws that allowed for the enslavement and long-term apprenticeship of Native Americans. And so this 1850 law, which, you know, perhaps not ironically, passes the same year as that really harsh Federal Fugitive Slave Act that I talked about earlier, uh, was an attempt to basically push Native people into relationships of unfreedom. So uh, that law allowed white heads of household to adopt, quote unquote, I'm using my scare quotes here, Native children and take them into their households as essentially wards until they got older. And uh, we know that this leads to a lot of coercion of Native children being taken away from their parents, either through the legal system, where they're deemed incompetent, or they're pressured by the landholders who own the land on which they live, used to be their homelands, now these new non-Native uh, landholders have come in and say, hey, I want your children to grow up in my family as apprentices and wards to help around the house. And they're kind of pressured into that, not kind of, they are pressured into that. And then in 1860, the state actually makes this even worse by passing uh, laws that allow for the apprenticeship of adult Native people uh, for periods up to 10 years. Hmm. And uh, what this leads to is just mass warfare and kidnapping campaigns across, especially um, kind of far Northern California, uh, Humboldt uh, County, Mendocino County. There are accounts of men who basically bands of, uh, of men who follow around the U.S. Army, and when the U.S. Army gets into a skirmish they, with Native people, they come in and steal the children in the aftermath, or they provoke war against Native people, just come in and raid their camps and steal their children and kill the adults. And so there is a, you know, a state-authorized system of genocide, kidnapping, and enslavement aimed at Native people in this period. 
was an outgrowth of this, especially in the legal system, also that no basically non-white person could testify against a white person. That's right. Uh, California very early on passed a law that said that uh, people with Native or Black ancestry could not testify in court for or against um, any white person. So in a case involving white litigants on either side, you couldn't have a uh, Native American or Black witness. And so this meant that uh, people could abuse, white people could abuse people of color and not really face any consequences so long as there weren't any white witnesses uh, to the event. And later, the California Supreme Court, because those testimony laws were passed before the big period of Chinese immigration, they didn't contain a, a prohibition against Chinese testimony. But in 1854, the Supreme Court of California decided, in some pretty twisted logic, that uh, Chinese people were essentially from the same, quote-unquote, racial family as Native Americans, that they were just a different kind of Indian, is essentially kind of what the, they say, and that Chinese people are also barred from testifying against whites based on, based on this bizarre racial precedent from 1854. Hmm. Well, we have some calls and comments coming in, and let me go to Lauren in Santa Rosa. Hi, Lauren. Hi, hello. I'm glad you guys are talking about this. Uh, I moved down, actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Humboldt County. I moved down from Humboldt County about three years ago and um, and was really shocked uh, while I lived up there to learn some of the history, including about the Indian Island Massacre that took place outside of Eureka, where you know, dozens of uh, women, children, and men were killed. And then the remaining populations of Native Americans up there were basically either hunted down systematically or uh, many of the women and children were put into enslavement. And there are, there are population or there are ownership records of prominent North American or North, Northern Californian uh, landowners and their slaves. Um, throughout the 1800s. And um, so, I, I mean, you guys answered a lot of uh, or a lot of the questions that I, I was calling with, but um, could you speak more to how um, really about the roving bands really of uh, Native American uh, hunters, like these groups of, of people who came up from Sacramento and the gold rush come country to um, remove Native Americans from their land, steal the land, and and enslave the people. And I can take my answer off air. Thank you so much. Lauren, thank you. Can you speak to that, Stacy Smith? Well, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things going on, uh, but it is a I mean, really, the state of California itself participated in this. Sometimes it's groups of what we would call, quote unquote, vigilantes who go out and say, we are angry that this group of Native Americans has the gall to stay on their homelands. And maybe they claim that the Native people have killed a person or a, dom a domesticated animal like a cow. And so they will come down hard, uh, a group of essentially vigilantes will come without any authorization and just kill people and take off uh, women and children as slaves. 
So that's common, but we shouldn't also forget that it's actually pretty common for the state of California to actually authorize these expeditions, hmm. uh, often by paying uh, off the people who did this. And so sometimes these vigilante groups would go out and do this, and then they would say to the California state government, hey, we spent a lot of money going out into the field doing this. Uh, we had like our little militia going and we want to be paid. We want reparations for our expense of killing these native people. And the state of California um, went along with that, uh, did either retroactively pay or in other cases just you know, made provisions even beforehand for these kind of um, essentially militia vigilante types to go out and hunt down native people. So California itself was very complicit, the state of California complicit in these hunting expeditions. It wasn't just rogue bands of vigilantes doing it. That was the case sometimes, but a lot of it is actually authorized and paid for by the state of California. You've talked about how broad, basically, the unfreedom, I think, is a word that you use in your book, Freedom's Frontier, of California uh, reached. I'm curious, that book came out in the early 2000s. What kind of reaction do you get when you try to show the state's role in slavery? So um, the initial reaction that I got, and I always tell this story about, about my research, the initial reaction I got was that uh, when I went to do the dis, uh, the dissertation research that eventually became this book, I was working at a state archive, and one of the archivists there introduced me to their colleague. They knew that the project I was working on, they introduced me to their colleague as, here's this woman who's trying to prove that we had slavery in California. Mm. And so that's how I was introduced, and repeatedly over the years, I got kind of pushback, well, well, we're only talking about 1,500 uh, at most, at the very most, enslaved African-Americans. Why is that significant? And, you know, I really have made the case it's significant because it's, you know, part of a broader history of unfreedom in California that we haven't really wrestled with uh, yet in a meaningful way. Um, but it's also significant in that it shows, even if there's a, a very small enslaved Black population in California, it shows how much California was invested in the institution of slavery politically, symbolically, uh, even if there weren't many enslaved people or people running away from enslavement here. California chose to side with the pro-slavery South, and that tells us a lot about politics in California and in the United States in this period. I want to bring... Taylor Bythewood Porter into the conversation now, uh, an assistant curator at the California African American Museum in Los Angeles. Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, welcome. I'm so excited to be here and, and talking with all of you. Well, I'm glad to have you with us because I know that you have also been someone who has made an effort to bring out this California history through the museum. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that effort and if there are any particular stories that really stayed with you as you were doing your research. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, with the exhibition, we really relied on, um, you know, Freedom's Frontier, um, you know, by you, Stacey. So I'm so glad to be on air with you again. Um, you know, your research and work was really important for, for us at the museum and for the exhibition. Uh, and to really have a stronger sense and understanding of, again, California's involvement um, 
with enslavement and really being able to highlight and elevate a lot of these stories um, and really being able to present it in a visual way. And, and for me, it was really powerful and, and touching and really being able to give that to uh, you know, the Los Angeles community, to the African-American community, and just to, you know, California um, and, you know, the country at large and really being able to bring these issues to light um, really meant a lot to me and my co-curator, Tyree Boyd-Pates. Um, I remember that there was quite a bit of Los Angeles history that really affected you, especially with regard to the way children were treated, um, Black children. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the stories that really stuck out to to me in particular, I'm really involved with the, you know, the idea of guardianship um, and the act for the government and protection of Indians uh, of 1850 that was pretty also much utilized um, as a wardship and guardianship to, you know, enslave young women and children. Uh, and one of the stories that really stuck out to me was uh, of this young lady named Lucy, um, who came to Los Angeles with her enslaved grandmother, um, Julia, and their enslavers were John R. and Laura Everstein. And Everstein was actually the census taker in 1850 for um, Los Angeles City and County. Um, and there's a record of him um, assaulting the grandmother so badly that he had to be arrested, that there was a um, like a wardship battle where he really wanted to get custody of Lucy, where he was um, uh, going back and forth with other uh, members of Los Angeles such as John Nichols, who was the third mayor of Los Angeles, mm. and then even Benjamin David Wilson, who ended up being the uh, the second mayor of Los Angeles. And we know him now as, um, you know, just not only mayor of Los Angeles, um, but he was a California state senator. He was named for naming Big Bear. Uh, and these people show up in these in these battles of, of guardianship of this young lady. And, um, you know, she ended up um, staying with the Everstein family. She showed up eight years later in the 1860 um, census as being a servant in the home. So it's, you know, stories like that where, you know, families are being torn apart, where these laws and systems are in place that really just benefit, um, you know, white male uh, landowning privilege rather than really being able to give uh, agency and just acknowledgement to everyone else who's really involved in, in these systems. We're talking with Taylor Bythewood Porter, assistant curator at the California African American Museum in Los Angeles, who co-curated the 2018 exhibition, or I believe maybe it was 2019 or 2018 through 2019, mm -hmm. California Bound, Slavery on the New Frontier, 1848 to 1865. And actually images and the story that she's talking about right now can still be viewed online at uh, the museum's website. Also, Stacy Smith is with us, Associate Professor of History at Oregon State University, author of Freedom's Frontier. And you, our listeners, are also sharing your thoughts. Uh, Ronald writes, please comment on the unfree labor of Mexican and natives. Mexican-Americans, Californios were legally white, but 
lumped in most cases with non-white or native. Some were Mexican with Afro-Mexicans and also forced off their lands and businesses. Mexicans were not, quote, slaves, but were unfree. Mexican Californians are left out. Stacy Smith, do you have, you have definitely covered this in your book. Can you talk a little bit to Ronald's point? Yes. Um, so that is a very complex history, as Ronald uh, aptly points out, and he's exactly right about all of these uh, different complexities. One thing that's that's a complexity is that the Californios, who are the um, California Mexican landholders who were there before the United States shows up and conquers California and takes over, um, they had their definitely had their lands taken away over decades after the gold rush um, and were discriminated against for being Mexican and having native ancestry. At the same time, the Californios kind of innovated, uh, at least in Southern California, a lot of the practices of binding and uh, keeping Native Americans uh, of California, the Native peoples of California, in a condition of servitude. And uh, it is the Anglos that kind of come along right, you know, kind of before the gold rush and into it, who are sort of like, oh, this is a, this is a good system that the Californios have come up with, and we're going to replicate that in our laws. Uh, and so the Californios are both discriminated against and, and victimized, uh, but they are also involved in kind of the early roots of Native American enslavement in California. Mm. Stacy Smith, Associate Professor of History at Oregon State University, Taylor Bythewood Porter with the California African American Museum in Los Angeles are both with us talking about California's underrecognized history with slavery. And also you, our listeners, sharing your thoughts about what you are hearing and also what you consider a missing piece of California's history. We'll have more with you after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about slavery in California with Stacy Smith, Associate Professor of History at Oregon State University, and Taylor Bythewood Porter, Assistant Curator at the California African American Museum in Los Angeles. You, our listeners, are joining us with your thoughts on California's history with slavery and, and what you consider missing pieces and your reaction to what you are hearing about today. The number to join the conversation, 866-733-6786, the email address forum at kqed.org. You can post your thoughts and questions on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. 
Bill writes, I'm very happy to hear someone telling the truth about California history. Thank you. And don't forget the pro-slavery Confederates in the San Diego area or how the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act affected California in the 60s. And John writes, how divided were people's loyalties in California during the Civil War? I did not grow up here. How is the Civil War taught in California? Some quick reading indicates that there were Confederate sympathizers in California. Is it wrong to consider California as a northern pro-union state, similar to those in the Northeast? Stacey Smith, not just not even sympathizers, but also in some ways in very not just in California, but in very high positions, for example, in the state Supreme Court. Uh, can you answer John's question about people's loyalties in California during the Civil War? Yes. Well, um, California and actually Oregon, where I live and work now, uh, have kind of complicated relationships with the Civil War. Uh, I don't think it's wrong to say that they're pro-union States generally, that is the overarching politics uh, in California and Oregon, at least during the Civil War. But in both states, uh, there were definitely big pockets of pro secession, right? Pro Confederate people, especially in Southern California, where there were a lot of Southerners who settled. Uh, Taylor was talking uh, a lot about. Uh, that case involving Lucy Evertson. And that's an indication that there were actually lots of um, pro-slavery Southerners in California, uh, especially Southern California. And they, uh, a lot of them tried to cause trouble for the federal government in California. They were planning on doing things like raiding California shipments of gold in order to help the Confederacy. Uh, there are all kinds of conspiracies uh, that they're going to try to take Southern California for the Confederacy. None of those really pan out. Uh, but, you know, really interesting indicator of just how pro-Southern, at least antebellum, before the Civil War, California was, um, was that, you know, a fair number of pretty high-ranking officials went and joined the Confederate Army. Uh, William Gwynn, who was a U.S. senator from California, very high-ranking, uh, became a, uh, not a senator, became a um a general or at least an officer for the Confederacy. And a lot of these high-ranking pro-slavery Confederates left California so that they could um, so that they could go and fight for the Confederacy during the war. So I don't think it's a misnomer to say it's pro-union, but there are definitely surges of pro-Confederate, pro-Southern um, sympathy. Well, let me go to caller Anthony in San Jose. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to point out, in addition to the the racial uh, nature of slavery in the past, slavery still exists in California by law. If you read Article 1, Section 6 of the California Constitution, it says slavery is prohibited. Involuntary servitude is prohibited except to punish crime. We have 100,000 people in California prisons now who are subject to uh, involuntary servitude. They are required by law to work, and they do work, uh, sometimes as much as 40 hours a week. They are paid somewhere between $0.08 cents and $0.37 cents per hour. It takes a prisoner about two and a half weeks to buy a tube of toothpaste, which is not furnished by the state. And if you don't work, you are severely punished. You are not allowed uh, to contribute to Social Security or Medicare. So um, 
when you get out of prison, you are not eligible for the retirement programs that all of us are uh, entitled to after a lifetime of work. And so these people are released from prison, impoverished. They cannot support either themselves or their family. And this is um, this is all legal. Anthony, thank so you. So slavery still exists. Thank you for making that point. Wondering if I could get your reaction, Stacey Smith. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of scholars who have referred to today's mass incarceration either as, you know, kind of the new slavery or more often you hear the new Jim Crow. And that's not just California's uh, law about slavery that has that part about prison labor. It's the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution has it. And, uh, you know, historically, prisoners are a group of people who were exempt from laws against forced labor. And this was a big deal after the end of slavery because the southern states passed, and I'm, I'm sure uh, you know about this already, Anthony, Southern passed these laws that essentially uh, allowed African-Americans to be arrested for very petty crimes and then put on uh, or put into prison and then leased out as convict laborers uh, and to corporations who work them to death. And so this has been an ongoing uh, problem, an ongoing injustice in the United States that isn't just new. It's been going on uh, through all of U.S. history, but especially since the 13th Amendment had that loophole in it. You know, Taylor, Bythewood Porter, I'm thinking about something you said related to doing research on your shows and previous conversations where it really had you thinking about how actions and decisions in the past affect our future. And, and we have another listener, for example, who writes, can you please speak to how these histories of slavery and oppression translate to practices of unfree labor, quote, unfree labor in the current immigration labor today? Can you speak to where we see unfree labor today. And I'm curious what connections you make to what you have learned about California's relationship with slavery and into today. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, everybody has definitely been speaking on about that with, uh, you know, the 13th Amendment and, and really seeing how that shows in, you know, the California Constitution, how it is also, um, you know, a, a, a national law that's in place. And just, again, these decisions where when California wanted to enter into the union to receive statehood, what kind of laws and things like that, that they were passing something to appease Southern uh, slave owners who coming are coming into California, but then also wanting to receive state rights. And, um, you know, the longer they go back and forth and trying to decide if California is going to be a free state or, um, a slave state, well, why don't we just say we are entering into the union as a free state, but we'll have this law in place um, where we can create laws um, or situations where we can, um, you know, where the state can penalize people of color um, or, and, or women and children in order to kind of maintain that power and seeing how that manifests and, and again, how you're seeing redlining, how you're seeing, um, you know, funds being distributed um, throughout the state for, you know, for things that are needed, um, you know, school, education, um, you know, just having just better access to things. 
And, um, and so, right. And so now we're in this, this, this new, I think more evolved world when we're looking back and we're saying like those decisions that these people made, um, were not really for the benefit of all, they were just really for the benefit of themselves. And it's, that's where it's just really important to, to, you know, read the, you know, read the books that's, that Stacy is writing, uh, to go to these exhibitions, to have these kind of conversations, to see how can we do better as a collective. Stacy Smith, if you'd also like to try to give examples for Andrew about where we see, quote, unfree labor today, but I'm also curious about how you choose your words, um, why you say, for example, unfree labor, how you make what's the distinction between that and enslavement is it a function of the fact that the book was written you know a couple decades ago and and just really curious how you manage that yeah so um unfree is a is a is a word that i use in order to really capture the full diversity and complexity of different types of labor systems, uh, in part because some of the labor systems that I talk about that we haven't really gotten into much detail yet involve things that look uh, more like what we would think of as free wage labor, right? The labor we all engage in now. Uh, For instance, I think it was Ronald earlier talked about uh, Mexicans in California, many of them uh, who were not the Californios, those elites who came to the gold rush from Mexico, worked as uh, debt peons, right? And they contracted to work for a wealthy man or landholder for a certain amount of time and to get a certain amount of wage before then being set free. And that's really different than enslavement, um, I think. I mean, it, it has a lot in common, of course, but I think that we shouldn't uh, I think that we need to to be we need to think about our terms in 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 ways that encapsulate that full complexity and diversity. Um, debt peonage is like like slavery in some ways, but not in other ways. And so, unfreedom is a word that kind of captures that larger picture. Uh, and then the, I'd also say, in terms of you know present day issues around unfreedom. Uh, this idea of peonage really is still kind of central. We've got uh, evidence that, you know, in some uh, industrial situations, people are kind of laboring under relationships that kind of look like peonage, right? Where they're, they are kind of held in a company situation where they can't really get out, usually are immigrants, kind of live in company housing, uh, oh, maybe maybe not owe debts, but are sort of in a really vulnerable position where they can't really get out because maybe they're undocumented. And there's all kinds of unfreedom going on in those relationships. Um, and, you know, I, I sometimes tell my students at the university, you all are debt peons in a sense, right? Uh, student loans, Credit cards uh, could be interpreted kind of as a series, uh, as an example of debt peonage, where you have to work off a debt unless you die or otherwise get released from it. So I think there are lots of modern uh, parallels to some of the unfreedom that we're talking about. 
We're talking with Stacey Smith, professor of history at Oregon State University, author of Freedom's Frontier, California and the Struggle Over Unfree Labor, Emancipation and Reconstruction. Taylor Bythewood Porter co-curated an exhibition called California Bound, Slavery on the New Frontier, 1848 to 1865, for the California African American Museum in Los Angeles, which still can be viewed online at the museum's website. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And... Rob writes, can someone please share the story of Biddy Mason, freed from slavery in San Bernardino and an early L.A. pioneer? Uh, we have listeners sharing missing pieces of California history and things that they'd like to learn more about. Uh, Taylor, by the reporter, do you have any quick words about Biddy Mason for Rob? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Biddy is just a, uh, has just a wonderful story. You know, it, it definitely started off with a lot of hardship, but I think for me it just ends in this kind of like, a female empowerment kind of way. So, you know, she was born into enslavement in 1818, uh, originally from Mississippi. She was traded a few times between multiple enslavers uh, in Georgia and South Carolina um, before ultimately um, being in uh, the possession of Robert Smith. Um, so he, they traveled from Mississippi, they went to Utah, and then eventually came to California. Um, but in total, um, they traveled, you know, the, they mostly traveled by caravan, but with Biddy and her children, she traveled by foot. So she walked uh, over, you know, 1,700 miles behind this wagon trail to get to, get to California. Mm. Um, they ended up in Los Angeles County. Uh, in, uh, again, in 1851. And during her time in, in Los Angeles County, they became friends with uh, free African-Americans, uh, Robert uh, and Minnie Owens, who let her know about California's stance on enslavement. And with this realization, you know, she wanted to, to leave. She wanted to take her children and she wanted to be free. Um, Robert Smith, uh, then decided that they needed to leave. Um, they needed to leave California. So he took Biddy, the children, and a few other of his enslaved people and tried to escape and try to go through um, the San Bernardino Mountain Pass and been trying to leave the state. However, um, when people found out about this intention, the Los Angeles County Sheriff gathered a posse together to, to stop this uh, from happening, which they were able to do. And they were able to bring um, uh, Robert Smith to, to court. And, um, you know, again, right, African-Americans weren't allowed to, to testify. So it was really remarkable that the presiding judge, Benjamin Hayes, um, you know, allowed Biddy to say how she felt about the situation. And, and with her testimony, um, you know, they were able to grant her freedom officially for her, her children, and a few other um, of the enslaved people um, who were, again, under the control of Robert Smith. And in the end, uh, Biddy Mason earned enough money as a midwife and a nurse to purchase land, um, which is now part of downtown Los Angeles. She organized and financed the first African-American Methodist um, Episcopal Church in 1872, and it's one of the oldest African-American churches in the city. You know, last summer, the ACLU of Northern California produced this podcast called Gold Chains, which KQED aired and, and which talked about the exhibit you curated, Taylor. 
The Preparations Task Force is now looking in depth at California's history. You were part of that podcast as well as you, Stacey Smith, have been part of the Reparations Task Force's look at all of this. And as we just have a couple minutes left, I'm curious what your hopes for how we think about, talk about, and represent this history going forward, what those hopes are. So, and I'm sure Taylor has has thoughts too that she wanted to share. you know, I really, I really hope that through this research and through this testimony, that Californians are really going to see the state's complicity in enslavement and anti-Black discrimination, uh, because I think that it's again, as we said at the top of the hour, very easy to dismiss this idea that California was involved in slavery because it's so far west. Um, and to really see it as this paradise of freedom. And so I think the reparations uh, task force and all the research and testimony they're taking are really going to uh, not only reveal the U.S.'s complicity uh, in this, but also California's, and to really make us think hard about what it is that the state of California owes uh, for these injustices. I'm being told that we'll link to that podcast episode that I just mentioned for listeners who are interested. Really want to thank you, Stacey Smith, for sharing everything that you have learned. And also Taylor Bythewood-Porter for sharing what you've learned as well as you have looked at California's struggle with slavery um, through work at the museum, through your book, Stacey Smith. Thank you both. Thank you very much. I also, yes, and I also want to thank Ariana Prail, who produced today's segment and is also producing a segment next Tuesday where we'll revisit some of these themes in a broader national conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who created the 1619 Project. We'd love to hear what you think our nation needs in order to accurately teach its history. Forum is also produced by Judy Campbell, Blanca Torres, and Grace One. Susan Britton is our lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Caroline Smith is our engagement producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul Kelly. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening to Forum. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone? 
hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years. Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.